0: We're plotting our way through the book of Ephesians. We only have a couple weeks left, so we're getting towards the end here. Uh, And just by way of quick review, uh, we all know that the first, we all know now, that the first three chapters of Ephesians are quite heavy in what we have referred to as orthodoxy. It's literally dripping with the nectar of truth regarding our salvation. It's available to all who believe by God's grace alone, through our active faith alone, in Christ and his sacrifice alone. And as a result of our salvation, we are all now members of this one body, this one global, ageless, timeless body. We're joined together, we're being joined together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, and this supreme gift of God's grace is available to all, Jew and Gentile alike. That's the first three chapters. Then we get to the second four chapters, and the focus starts to change from uh, Paul providing a proper understanding of of the gospel to giving us kind of a blueprint for how we are to properly live according to the gospel. We transition from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from right thinking to right living, and that order is important. Salvation by faith comes first. Our good works, our right living does not save us. So, Paul's given us, given us very practical advice, even some do's and don'ts, which we all like because we don't have to think that way just tell us what we need to do. But the real goal for Paul here is to help draw us into the right attitude for a right living. Not just give us a list to follow. So our new life, our, our new saved life, our new gospel spirit-filled life should result in a growing awareness that we now have a new family, we have new responsibilities, we have a new purpose. And our life should be ordered according to those new goals. So we are to walk, he says repeatedly, in an altogether new manner. And we're going to pick that up again this morning. Chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I get these passages with like 11 sermons right there, just in that. We're going to try to get it all down into one today, so we better pray before we get started. Father God, again, we're grateful for the chance to gather here together this morning as part of the, the one local body, understanding that we're part of a, a, one global body, all, all part of the believers of, of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I thank you um, that we have the opportunity to, to spend time in your word this morning. I pray that as we go through these, uh, another somewhat challenging section, that we have ears to hear. Um, this is going to find different application for all of us, Lord. And I pray that we are all listening to the spirit that lives in us to know where we need to land on some of these issues. I pray for clarity for what we receive from your word, and, and an open heart and mind to hear it and receive it. We thank you for, overall, for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So by now, you've probably noticed, if you've been here going through this series with us, that Paul expects these early Christians to be faithful followers, and he refers to this repeatedly as their walk. So spiritually speaking, he exhorts them to do a lot of walking, the word walk is used five times in this short little letter to the Ephesians. The first time it shows up is chapter 2. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. And notice it's walked. It's past tense. <coughs> Paul's obviously referring here to how these Ephesian Christians, and really it applies to all Christians everywhere, how we used to live. Here's how, here's how you used to live. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. A double plural. This was serious business. You were dead in trespasses and sins. That's how you once walked. We lived according to our sinful desires. We were spiritually dead as a result. Then the other four uses of walk all occur in the second half of the book. So remember, the first three chapters are all about the foundation of our faith establishing what we believe, it's the orthodoxy section, the importance of the gospel and how it should change our lives. And then starting in chapter 4, Paul switches up to talk about how our acceptance of these truths, our new beliefs, our salvation, prompts us to live differently. So we went from how we walked to how we should be walking. You used to walk like the followers of the devil. You used to walk like the rest of the world. But now you can walk this way. Now you walk in an altogether different way as a follower of Christ. And if you think about Paul's use here, I actually found this very encouraging this week because Paul's emphasis is not on how we used to live. He's he's not calling us out on our past sins. He's not pointing his finger at all of us saying, Sander, 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 you guys used to be so bad. He's saying, put that behind you. You can forget about that. That's how you used to live. That's the old you, here is the new you. You have a better life you can live. You have a better life you can enjoy. And this is part of the glory and joy of our of our salvation. It's not about who we were, it's about who we can be. It's about who we're called to be, who we can be now as a result of the grace of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now that we're thinking rightly, we can live rightly. Or we can try because Paul makes this further distinction about how we are now to live, and he says you can either live wisely or you can live unwisely. And in the context here, I don't think it's really difficult to figure out which side he he attributes to which side. In in the previous verse that Al covered last week, he just said, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. So this just reinforces the argument that the old way of living, the way we used to walk, that led to our spiritual death. The pre-Jesus you... Spiritual death, that's where you're headed. But living for Christ, you're now reborn. Living as a Christ follower, you're saved from the spiritual consequences of death. This is the wise choice to follow Jesus. It's pretty clear. To have Christ shining on us, to have the Spirit living in and through us, that's the wise choice. But Paul, I think, also acknowledges that this better way to walk is not always the easy way to walk, because he starts the section with, Look carefully then. Pay attention to how you're living. Be intentional about how you're, you're living. Be wise. Make good choices. Which parent has not said that to their teenager leaving the house? Make wise choices. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. Some translations might say redeem the time. Uh, it's the same idea. What we're to understand here is that our life is relatively short. And the older you get, the more you realize how relatively short life is. And if, if Jesus has called us to, to good works, which we're told repeatedly he has, it's why we're created, then we only have a limited amount of time to get stuff done. We need to take every opportunity to do those good works to live up to our preordained purpose. And that's going to require us to live rightly, or as Paul says here, to live wisely. And the context here really is less um, internal than, than it is external. Wise living begins internally, but it works itself out externally. We're living for Christ so that the world may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That's what we're told to do. Paul's reminding us that people around us, our friends, our family, our coworkers, the world at large, they're watching how we live. And the world at large is evil. Now, that's not to say they're all devil worshippers or that they're even bad people, necessarily. But it does mean that the unbelievers in our culture live by a different set of principles than Christians do or should. So when we proclaim Christ, when we're walking in a worthy manner we're declaring that we're trying to live differently than the unbelieving world. And people will notice. People will watch. People will pay attention. And some people will look for chinks in our spiritual armor. They're going to look for indications that we're not really serious about this whole Jesus thing. Yeah, they say that, but look at what they do. I mean... It seems like their, their, their uh, statement is, Jesus is great, but then I watch how they live, and it seems like he's great for Sundays, maybe. Not even every Sunday, but you know, a lot of Sundays, Jesus is great. But Friday night, they say, is me time. And people are watching. Does our Friday night behavior match with our Sunday morning behavior? Are we any different as a result of our professed faith In the risen Christ. So, knowing that people are watching and knowing that that we've made a commitment to new life in Christ, Paul says, Don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is and live wisely. Now, here's one of those things that could be a series of sermons. Because, truth be told, as Christians, we tend to get kind of nutted up about the whole God's will thing. Sometimes we tend to mysticize it just a little bit too much. As in, who can know the mind of God? And by that we mean, we can pretty much do what we want because we can't say for for certain that God doesn't want us to do that. This is just all unexplainable. It must be God's will. Now, there certainly is some element of truth to that, but Paul would not say, "Understand the Lord's will," if it was a complete and total mystery. So just to help us all out, we're just going to take a quick look at, uh, there's probably more, but at least three categories of God's will. And there are varying opinions on the number of categories and the names we call these categories. But I'm going to keep it simple because I am not that bright. So let's look at these three categories of God's will. First is God's sovereign will. That's, I think, clearly laid out in verses like Isaiah 46.10 that says, My purpose will stand. Whatever God says is going to happen, and it will happen. So life and the universe, and it all works according to God's preordained plan. He said, let there be light, and there was light, and there still is light. We're told that he knows when a sparrow falls. This is all under God's sovereign will. He understands, he knows all this. One of the songs we sing, Creator Sustainer, it's this idea of God, God's sovereign will. He keeps it all working. Well, next we have God's revealed will. These are the, the precepts and the principles that were taught. They're, they're given to us to help lead us towards holiness, to Christ-likeness. Those are the things we see in God's revealed word. There's an awful lot of stuff written down here for us. Now, we have the right, I guess, to break these rules, to go against these rules, to ignore the rules, but they're still God's revealed will, what he would like us to do. And then we have this other kind of murky category called dispensational will. And this kind of n- more reflects God's attitude. Dispositional, not dispensational. Dispositional will reflects God. That's a whole different thing. <laughs> whole another series of sermons. Uh, di- dispositional will reflects God's attitude. Um, it- it's often a result of the consequences of people ignoring his revealed will. It's stuff God has to do that he'd rather not do. It's, it's punishing people. Again, like a parent, if you had to punish your kids, you'd rather not spank a, a, a three-year-old. But you have to every once in a while. Well, you don't have to, but you could. <laughs> so, <laughs> these are the things that, that bring no pleasure to the Lord. Uh, like uh, There's a lot of Old Testament wrath of God type stuff. That is part of his dispositional will. He wants none to perish, we're told. But he knows that many will. They will ignore the gospel message. But for God to be gracious and merciful... And just, he has to do some things that he would rather not do, but it all, it's part of his will. So the, the first and the third categories here are re- really harder for us to understand as mere mortals. We're created in his image, but we're not God. We don't have the mind of God. We don't think like God. We don't understand all the stuff that God understands. We just like to think we do. But in our text here, Paul is referring to the revealed will category. He's not telling us, that we have to, all of a sudden, discover all of God's big plans and best-kept secrets. I mean, believe me, i got questions when I, get, when I get to heaven. i got things I don't understand. But what, what Paul is telling us to understand, what he's calling on us to follow, is what we do know about the will of God. For example... First Peter 2.15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. First Thessalonians 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. We're seeing a pattern here, right? There's a lot of will of God stuff. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Micah 6, eight. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We can't say we don't know what the will of God is in these areas. It's clear. And this is just a sampling of God's revealed word, his revealed will that we find in Scripture. Now, again, there, there are elements of God's will that are absolutely mysterious and well above our pay grade. But there's a lot he has told us. There's a lot that has been revealed to us. And even as Paul is writing this, this letter to the Church of Ephesians, he's laid out a whole other a whole list of other things that we should be paying attention to. We're told to live with humility. Gentleness, peace, love. Maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Live up to your calling, live up to your giftedness. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. Don't practice sensuality and greed and all other kinds of impurity but rather speak truth and love. we got a lot of stuff. We know what God's will is, and in most areas of our life, it's it's quite clear. If we're looking for it. He's given us a whole guide on how to live rightly, and this is all God's will for us. We don't have to guess at it. We don't have to sit around in some kind of spiritual, vegetative state waiting for an angel to land on our lazy boy saying, this is God's will for you. He wrote a lot of it down. So put down the Cheetos, take a shower, and get on with it. Here it is. Do this stuff. Avoid this stuff. And get after it, because the time is short. Days are evil. Don't waste your time. Don't be foolish. Because here is what God's will is for each of us. As followers of Christ, here is what God's will is. So as Paul is giving us more to consider as to how we are to live these following instructions in this section really kind of fit into three different categories as I see it. The first part of God's will for us is joyful living. But we're talking about real, genuine, joy-of-the-Lord type stuff, not the cheap imitation stuff that we often settle for. And so Paul gives us some examples of what that looks like. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies to the Lord with your heart. Do not get drunk with wine. Seems out of place. Seems odd here, doesn't it? Again, a whole sermon, a whole series of sermons on this particular topic. Because the Christian and alcohol has been the source of much confusion, misunderstanding, and bad teaching for many, many, many years which itself has led to extreme legalism on one end and probably excessive liberty on the other end. We need to try to rightly understand the teaching and apply it, and so I'm going to try to nutshell it for you here. But check me, check me out on this. Go, go home and study and call me out if I've gotten it wrong. But the Bible does not forbid the drinking of wine, or any alcohol for that matter, It does repeatedly point out the dangers associated with alcohol, like addiction, and the Bible outright forbids drinking to excess as it does here. It's not forbidden, but don't overdo it. It sounds simple. You have liberty to enjoy this, but you don't want to become mastered by anything except Christ. It doesn't seem that complicated. And yet, there has been so much bad teaching and excessive moralizing, really, over the years that the issues become very confusing and even divisive. I mean, at least since the days of Prohibition, probably farther back than that, but some teachers, and I have been in churches where this has happened, some teachers say that the wine in the Bible was just grape juice. It was unfermented. It was was just grape juice. And this misrepresentation if not outright lie, was intended to justify, I think, some controlling instinct of the pastor or teacher that you shouldn't drink alcohol of any kind. So they try to explain it away from the Bible rather than try to figure out what it really says. And the truth is that wine in the Bible was fermented and it was widely used, at least in part, and probably large part, because it was safer for consumption than a lot of the water But it probably had nothing like the alcohol content that we have now. But it had a measurable amount of alcohol. People were getting drunk on Bible wine. Again, look this up. Check this out later if you want to. But what was Jesus' first miracle? He turned water into grape juice. We all know that. Not what it says. Jesus turned water into wine. Wine was needed for a good wedding. And Jesus turned water into wine. And I'm guessing it was good wine. On the day of Pentecost, the apostles, now freshly imbued with the Holy Spirit, were accused of being drunk on grape juice. The Nazarite vow includes not touching any alcohol. That's an indication of them being set apart, of having made these special vows for Christ. And it seems to indicate that if not drinking alcohol was an indication of being set apart from everyone else, then everyone else must have been drinking alcohol. That's logic. That throws a lot of us. I know. In Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, he dresses down the church, at least individuals within the church, for using communion as an excuse to get drunk. Do you know how many little tiny cups of Welch's you would have to drink? (laughs) (laughs) Little tiny cups strewn about the church. So, bad teaching, for whatever purpose, has led some to fabricate this whole moral system of ought-nots that are not in the Bible. Rather than teach what is in the Bible... And it applies not just to drinking, but throughout the church, especially in the West, we have this whole series, this long list of things that have been declared evil. Like playing cards. Anybody hear this one? As a Playing cards was from the devil. Dancing is evil. Movie theaters are evil. Women wearing pants, goes without saying. <laughs> Listening to the devil's music. To live wisely, we are instructed to follow the revealed will of the Lord, his written principles, not some arbitrary man-made code of pharisaical religiosity. (laughs) I'm having bumper stickers made of that one. (laughs) However, before we all share a toast over biblically-sanctioned wine, we need to be aware that there are a significant number of verses which point out the dangers of alcohol consumption. Our goal here is moderation, wise choice-making. Proverbs 21 says, Wine is a mocker, drink strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. This is Proverbs. It's the wisdom book. It knows. We should pay attention to this. We know, for example, that Noah got drunk, did not end well. <laughs> Lot got drunk, did not end well. Paul starts this section by saying, live wisely, and here we read that being led astray by alcohol is unwise. Or well, if you really want to get into it, Proverbs 23 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wake? I must have another drink. (laughs) Now, I know none of you have ever drank into excess, but this is kind of what it's like. If you do. It's not a real wholesome picture. This makes clear the potential danger of becoming too reliant on drink. Woe and strife and sorrow. And the irony here is I think that so many people try to find joy or peace or contentment in a glass. And Proverbs says all that does is multiply our problems. So Paul's point here, in in, in this context of the other verses, all the ones we've looked at, Paul's point here is you can enjoy God's gifts, even alcohol, but not to excess. Don't get drunk. That is debauchery. That's a sin. It's a lie. It does not do what you think it will do. And it ends up controlling you. So don't be be controlled by anything but Christ. Don't be filled with wine or, or cheap imitations of sensual pleasure of any kind. That is not the source of your joy. Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. There is the source of our joy. That's the goal of the Christian. When we're filled with the Spirit, another gift as a result of our salvation, we have this new life which is being supported by a new spirit, and we won't need these cheap imitation feel-goodism of strong drink or whatever other sensual pleasures tempt us. We will have the real deal. We will have the joy of the Lord. Which allows us, really causes us, to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're led to make melody to the Lord with our heart. This is just another part of joyful living. It makes us sing. Some of us really well. And then others of us really want to sing. The spirit-filled heart makes us want to sing to the Lord from the heart. So this needs a little explanation too. According to this, the songs that we sing ought to be indicative of the joy we find in the Lord. Our songs should be God honoring and God praising. And, and Paul gives us a list of, of what I think are kind of different categories of songs here. Psalms is exactly what we think it is. It's, it's a reference to the book of Psalms. It was. It's a psalter. It's a collection of inspired songs. Songs of praise, even the psalms of sorrow and lament, all tend to end in praise or worship. They focus on the attributes of God and and how he alone is praiseworthy. They're collected in the holy book. They're available to all believers at all times. The psalms connect us with the one body from all church ages. We all share a songbook. The tunes may change. But the doctrine and the meaning should remain. Now, a hymn is another uh, type of song of praise or thanksgiving, and it gives honor to God also. The best hymns, the ones that last, are scripture-based as well. They teach us doctrine. And the hymn has been part of the church since the beginning. We're told that after the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn before they departed. It's, It's part of a normal Christian gathering. But hymns, I think, tend to be a little more culturally dependent. So the, the, uh, a hymn written in Morocco may be less pleasing to our ears than something written in the UK or in America. Or, you know, different chord structures and different tones. and that Maybe they just don't translate as well. Some of the older hymns that we're familiar with even suffer a little bit from just changing language. Most of us don't use a lot of these and thous anymore. So we make modifications as we go. But the doctrine is still solid. The teaching is still sound. So each church at each age, I think, tends to kind of create their their own hymnal with the goal of teaching doctrine and honoring God. Well, then we get into spiritual songs, which kind of rounds out this category. It's, for my opinion, kind of more general, broader in scope. Um, It certainly needs to have a spiritual theme. It is a spiritual song, after all. And because it is a mode of worship, it should have some doctrinal component to it as well. It should should teach us something. It should be encouraging to the body. It should exhort us to love one another. It should exhort us to good works. It should build up the church. That ought to be the purpose of a spiritual song. In my opinion, I'm going to say this again. In my opinion, so I could be wrong. I'm not. In my opinion... (laughs) And ironically, I think, given the text here, the, the general nature of, of, of a spiritual song has led to excess in the modern version. And probably throughout time as well, but certainly true for the day. And it's, I say it's ironic because we're just told not to drink to excess, and now we're talking about singing, where I believe that we have taken this whole spiritual song thing to excess as well, to the point where so many churches, so many Christians, I believe, have become worshipers of worship. To excess, we worship or idolize the feeling of worship rather than keeping our focus on the one who is to be worshiped. So we now have songs, we have any number of songs, many, many songs, popular songs that are routinely sung in churches that have little to no value in doctrinal teaching. Little to no value in in encouraging or exhorting or worshiping Jesus. Many songs that are nothing more than spiritual navel gazing. I mean, Jesus is great and all, but let me tell you how I feel about him in this 11 minute emotional regurgitation. Let me give you an example. I'm not trying to offend anyone. But I probably will. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown where feet may fail, and there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep my faith will stand. And I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. When oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours and you are mine. And then like ad nauseum for ten more minutes. This just goes. Now... I will grant you, there may be circumstances, there may be times, maybe you've had a rough day, you're driving home, this comes on the radio, or or you pop it in your CD player, and and you find this soothing, calming, helpful to some degree. Fine, I have no problem with that. My concern is, this is not a congregational worship song. This is not a song that exhorts or encourages or teaches the church. It is not a song that proclaims the attributes of God or Jesus. It kind of seems like a love song to a lifeguard. Should I say that again? No, that was... was (laughs) Compared to one of the songs we sang this morning, Holy King, you are righteous and true. With justice, you govern the world. Glory and majesty, power and honor are yours. You defend the afflicted and weak. You care for the fatherless children. Peace will abound when you sit as the king of the earth. Jesus Messiah, you are the light in the darkness. Prince of peace, sorrow will flee when you come in power. What's the next line? Let your kingdom come. Tell me you see a difference there. Right living is based on right thinking, which leads to joyful living. And I submit that our joy is being greatly diminished when we worship our feelings about worship rather than being actively engaged in worship of a heavenly father rather than singing about the character traits and attributes of an almighty God, we're being lulled into feel goodism And I I have been concerned, I am concerned, that when this church finally faces some degree of persecution, we're going to cave in, we're going to fold like a cheap suit, because our feelings are going to get hurt. Because the Bible is not being taught, taught from the pulpit, because the Bible is not being sung by the church, And we're not going to have right thinking, we're not going to have right living, and we're not going to have any joy. That's the end of that soapbox. (sighs) This is significant, this joyful living idea is important, and Paul lists these as elements of joyful living. The next thing he wants us to see, another category of right living, in addition to joyful living, is found in verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How are we to live rightly? How are we to live wisely? Be thankful. Now, remember, Paul is writing this from prison. He is likely confined to a small house which he's having to pay for. He's likely chained to a guard. Or at least has a guard close enough he can smell the ding dongs on his breath. He, he Paul's waiting for his day in court, which could take a year or more. And Paul says, "Give thanks always. Give thanks for everything. Give thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." And my immediate thought was, "Well, Paul doesn't have my boss." So it's pretty easy to say, be thankful for everything. Or Paul doesn't have my spouse. Paul doesn't have my debt. Paul doesn't have my back issues. Paul doesn't have my... We have this whole list of of excuses. We like to think we have it especially bad, and we have a right to grumble. Nope. We do not have a right to grumble. We have a responsibility to be grateful. And I'm with you on this one. That's hard. Sometimes that whole living thankfully thing, just not my wheelhouse. I, I, I'm sure this is just me. I'm, I'm alone on this, I'm pretty sure. But I struggle with being grateful for much of 2020. I, I continue to struggle with being grateful for the ongoing incompetence disguised as covid we can't truck things anymore. We can't make things anymore. We can't get things where they're supposed to be anymore. And I struggle with a lot of those things, which means, really, that I'm struggling with my own attitude about the world and about this time that the Lord has put me in the world, which means I'm really questioning God's plan for me. Yep. In my clearer, more lucid moments, I do remember to thank God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I I remember to thank him for what I have. I remember to thank him for who I love and for who who loves me or at least tolerates me really well. (laughs) We have so much to be grateful for. And with with our new life, with our new purpose, we get better at seeing it and appreciating it. It it is a process. But our, our, our gratitude flows back to the Father through the Son. And that whole concept kind of amazes me because that's kind of the reverse of how we attained our salvation in the first place. From the Father to the Son to us, our praise goes from us to the Son back to the Father. Living, thankfully, is an attitude adjuster. A big one, a painful one sometimes. Which leads us to Paul's third category for successful Christian living. Another opportunity for us to walk worthy, to redeem the time is, in verse 21, live submissively. No cheering? (laughs) Where are the huzzahs? Would you look at that? Another topic that could be a whole series. And and this is just the introduction to Paul's teaching on submission in the verses that follow. So I'm not going to get into a whole lot of specifics um, because we're going to deal with more of this, more particulars of it as we go on. But I do want to point out one thing before we pass on this. And that is the the tendency these days, and it's not just these days, but it's it's people. The tendency is we take this one sentence, this one part of a verse, and it appears in a couple of other places too. We take this one verse and we try to stretch it to mean something that it does not mean. Like, every Christian ought to willingly and mutually submit to every other Christian, you know, out of reverence for Christ. I mean, that would be the Jesus-like thing to do. And in practical practical terms, this has led to what is known as absolute mutual submission, which has kind of become the norm in our culture. And how this works itself out is that now every opinion is equally valid. Every viewpoint is equally valid. You have your truth. I have my truth. We all have truths. They're all all equal. They're all the same. We just have to mutually submit to the whims of everybody else and their ideas of what's right and wrong. And then as part of that, there's been a large-scale movement towards egalitarianism, Which, in political terms, egalitarianism says that all people in a society should have equal rights and opportunities. We're okay with that. But it can be kind of hard and murky to figure out the particulars of that as we get into it. And so we tend to confuse it and and even try to make it more deep and meaningful than it really is. Uh, And so we're trying to make the argument now that all people shouldn't have equal opportunity but equal outcomes. So we've swapped equality for equity. And if you ever read the news, you're hearing this pretty much every day. Now, in the church egalitarianism is mostly seen in this move towards equal access for women in church leadership roles. This, again, every, every now and again, it kind of bubbles up to the surface, and it's starting to do it again. Um, because if we are to submit to one another, you know, mutual submission, absolute mutual submission, then the church must submit to a female pastor as we would a male pastor, out of reverence for Christ. Just recently, Saddleback Church, which is Rick Warren's church, they just recently ordained three, male, three female pastors um, and as far as I know, that's that's the largest Southern Baptist church to have done this. Um, most mainline denominations have done this years and years ago. And it tends to become kind of a slippery slope. Um, it eventually eliminates any claim to absolute truth, because now everything becomes relative. And, and, and there's a problem with this mutual submission idea, based on scripture. Paul is not making a blanket statement here that all people must be submissive to all other people. Not what he's saying. That would be chaos. That's a culture in chaos. Which again, is we're seeing reflected in the times that we live in. Paul goes on to explain in the verses that follow how the submissive mindset works itself out in and through God-established and God-ordained family, social, and church structures. There are parameters for this submissive idea. So in the verses that follow over the next few weeks, we're going to look at um, how this works itself out in, in between husbands and wives, um, children and their parents, masters and servants. There are frameworks offered to help define appropriate submission. It's not a submissive free-for-all, but it's mutual submission within the constraints of God's ordered society. And I understand this can be hard to hear, and so we, we, we fight against it. We try to explain it away, again, like these other verses in the Bible that we're not comfortable with. We try to make them seem less than they are, or sometimes more than they are. We, we, we as a people, create straw men arguments so we can knock them over and feel good about our resistance to submission. Uh, we, we, we come up with things like patriarchy to describe the church and then knock down everything that has anything to do with patriarchy. and it, It's a whole s- system that has developed against what is God's teaching. So we need to understand it rightly. This is just the opening part of how this is going to unfold. But this is also why Paul says, if we're going to have this heart of submission, if we're going live to live our days wisely, we need to submit out of reverence for Christ. And, and what he means by this here, I think, is that Jesus submitted to the Father because that was the plan. That's what was needed. If we truly want to be Christ-like, then we ought to follow Jesus' lead. Jesus was God, but in the form of Jesus, he did not think equality with God was a thing to be grasped. Because that wasn't the plan. He submitted to the will of the Father. He even asked, is there not a better way? Isn't there like a plan B we could go to? But he submitted to the will of the Father. So, so Jesus submitted to the beatings and the mockery. He submitted to the lashes and the crown of thorns. He submitted to the cross. Now it might have looked like to the crowd watching that he was submitting to the Roman and Jewish leaders. He didn't care how it looked. Jesus was submitting to his Father. And as a result, we now all have equal opportunity, equal access to salvation, because God so loved the world. We all have equal access to a new life. And with this new life, with the power of the Spirit, we are called to live, we can live, joyfully, thankfully, and submissively. Let's pray. Father, it seems like we are uh, living in chaotic times. We're, we're, we're seeing the, the standards, the structures that you have preordained and set in place, they're all starting to, to erode. The foundation is crumbling because we do not have a spiritual foundation. Or we don't have right thinking on a cultural scale anymore. And so we're seeing the, the foundations of our culture crumble. We're seeing the, the structures of, of family and ordered society, they're all starting to crumble. Lord, we need to go back to your principles and your precepts. We need to go back to what is the revealed will of God. And it starts with all of us individually. And it moves through the church body. And it moves from the church body out into the culture at large. Lord, we pray for a renewed sense of living wisely for the people here today. Lord, a renewed sense of... Making good choices, making spirit-led choices that in, impact not just our lives but how we live in the culture around us, so that people may know that there is an alternative. There is a better way. We don't have to be locked into the the consequences of our trespasses and sins. We can find forgiveness and we can find joy, and we can find it in, in an altogether, altogether different manner and places than the world offers, Lord. But we can find joy in the Spirit. We can find joy in the Lord, Lord. I pray that we get, we we get better at at, at being thankful. I pray better that we uh, see more clearly all the things that we do have, rather than focusing on the things that we don't have or wish we had. And Lord, I pray that we uh, begin this, this process of attitude adjustment so that we get better at living thankfully, and we get better at living submissively, and we understand what that means in its, pro- in its appropriate use. and not, We're not swayed by how everyone else chooses to define it and how they label us. Lord, I pray that our our goal is to be Christ-like, to bring honor to our God and our Father. We thank you for how this is all laid out for us. I pray that we hear it clearly and follow it clearly in the days and weeks and months ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.